And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first, that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn, and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? And Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this, what David did when himself was in hunger, and they which were with him? How he went into the house of God, and did take and eat the showbread, and gave also to them that were with him, which it is not lawful to eat before the priests alone. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. They came to pass also on another Sabbath, that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. We turn to chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity eighteen years, and was bowed together, and could in no wise lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him, and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God." The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him, and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall, and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, for all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Finally, the first six verses of chapter 14. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief priests to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him, which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering, spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him, and healed him, and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could not answer him again to these things. This far we read the Word of God. We take the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 38 as our instruction this morning in its explanation of the fourth commandment of God's law. What doth God require in the fourth commandment? First, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God to hear His word, to use the sacraments, publicly to call upon the Lord, and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. Secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath.
Beloved saints in Christ, one of the things that strikes us as we read the three Bible passages that we read is how much of Jesus' earthly ministry is carried out on the Sabbath day. On the one hand, you have the Gospel accounts. The Gospel accounts which treat the life of Jesus on earth, but those Gospel accounts focus really on three or three and a half years of His ministry. Then even of those three or three and a half years, some places in the Gospel accounts focus on just a few days. Half of the Gospel, according to John, focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And even in those parts of the Gospel accounts that focus on the earlier part of Jesus' life, you don't see a regular systematic, this is month one of year one, month two of year one, but you see glimpses snapshots of certain moments in the life of Jesus, and again and again, events that happen on the Sabbath day. One thing that's underscored is that while He lived on earth, our Lord Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath day holy. He did that in at least two ways. In the first place, He was regularly in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, after His baptism... When he was announced to be the prophet of God, he was often teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. But before then, no doubt, Joseph and Mary had brought him regularly as a child to the house of God, the synagogues, to worship on the Lord's day. And in the second place, many miracles of healing take place on the Sabbath. Not just any miracle... Not, for instance, the stilling of the storm, nor usually, although it would not at all have been inappropriate, the raising of the dead. But miracles of healing take place on the Sabbath day. The man with the withered hand in Luke 6. The woman with a spirit of infirmity in Luke 13. The man with a dropsy in Luke 14. The impotent man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5. The blind man in John 9. Miracles of healing on the Sabbath. It is for these miracles that Jesus drew the charge again and again that he was a Sabbath breaker. And in response, on the one hand, to Jesus' keeping of the Sabbath, and in response to those charges... He underscores the fallacy and the fault of the opposite view of Sabbath-keeping set forth by the Pharisees. The Lord's Sabbath-keeping and the Pharisees' Sabbath-keeping are in diametric opposition to each other. Oh, did the Pharisees keep the Sabbath! They had rules about how far a man could walk on the Sabbath day because you mustn't work on the Sabbath and therefore mustn't journey too far. They had rules about what you could or could not do on the Sabbath and while they themselves would take their ox or ass out to the watering to get watered, yet, and while each of them would pull it out of a pit if it fell in, yet there were many lists of do's and don'ts that they had and enforced. They had, in other words, a very hypocritical and self-righteous standard of what the keeping of the Sabbath involved. Yet, you find them hosting feasts on the Sabbath to which they invite Jesus. Luke 14, verse 1. And to them Jesus says, Neither is your keeping of the Sabbath God-glorifying. For at essence, or at heart, you do not honor Jesus Christ as Lord of the Sabbath. And although you have many rules about what to do and what not to do, they all serve you, rather than you using the Sabbath in the service of God. That, in a nutshell, is the word of Jesus to the Pharisees. A proper keeping of the Sabbath 
by Jesus, a self-righteous and hypocritical keeping of the Sabbath by the Pharisees, and now in the day in which you and I live, especially in the society in which we live, a very licentious keeping of the Sabbath, a really antinomian keeping of the Sabbath, a saying, there really no longer is anything special about the Sabbath day, and therefore it need not be observed differently than every other day of the week. We fall, I say we, and I can say that as a congregation, but then each one of us individually, even more specifically, each one of us falls somewhere along a spectrum. And somewhere at the one end of the spectrum is the legalism of the Pharisees, and at the other end of the spectrum is the lawlessness of the society in which we live, and in the middle is the glory of God in the right keeping of the Sabbath. As our Lord and Savior instructs us, each one of us finds ourselves somewhere along that spectrum, and we must examine our view of the Sabbath and conform our view to our Lord's, so that we see Him as the Lord of the Sabbath. Honor the day as a day of rest given us by God, and keep it holy. That's the fourth commandment of God's law. It's our Lord and Savior Himself who gives us the instruction again in the school of the law, the lesson about God's holy day. First of all, notice that it's hallowed by God. Secondly, that it's remembered by the church. And third, that it's kept to eternity. The Sabbath, the day of rest, is a holy day. The word holy here means to be consecrated, to be devoted to God. And it begs a broader question, is not every day a holy day in the life of the child of God? Indeed, this is going to be one of the arguments that are set forth by some who say we need not observe the Sabbath as a special day of rest. Every day is holy. There is certainly truth to the fact that for the child of God, every day of the week, from Sunday through Saturday, is another gift of God to me. The life, the health, the strength I have, a gift from Him again. I am to serve Him on that day, to consecrate all my thinking, willing, and activity to Him, to keep His law. And even the Catechism suggests that in the second part when it says that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord. Yes, for the Christian, every day is holy because I have been made holy as a child of God. But when we speak of the Sabbath day as a holy day, we still say that of all the days in which I should be consecrated to Jehovah God, there is one that he says, set it apart from the other six and treat it, observe it in a unique way. The Sabbath day is a day of rest. And that's how it's holy or different from the other six. The other six are a day of work. The seventh is a day of rest. You remember how the Lord spells that out in the fourth commandment. He does not merely permit work. He does not merely say the opportunity to work if you want our six other days. But he says, six days shalt thou labor. And that, by the way, is a necessary part of keeping the Sabbath too. If I'm going to observe the rest of the Sabbath day and enjoy that rest. What's presupposed presupposed is that I haven't had a leisurely week. That I've toiled. That I found myself in need of the rest. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath. And the word Sabbath means rest. Now it is a day of rest in two senses. In the first place it is a day of rest From work. God himself set the pattern in the week of creation, for he rested the seventh day. And so he says to us, the seventh day of the week, at least in the New Testament, I'll come to that later, why it's the first day. 
For the moment, the seventh day of the week is a day in which you put aside all of your work. You don't even let your maidservant and your manservant, you don't even permit the stranger within your gates to work. You rest, and the application to everyone who is an employer is, you let your employees rest also. And the implication to everyone who is a head of the house is, you be sure that everyone in your household has the opportunity to rest also. It is a day of putting aside labor. Now, the carnal response, the old man's response to that is, great! I could tell my boss I won't work on Sunday. I could tell this person and that person, Sunday isn't, I can't do that. It's for me. But, no. It's not for me. And that leads us to the second part, in the second sense in which the Sabbath is a day of rest. Rest from work, but in order to enjoy the spiritual rest of salvation in fellowship with God. And that again is the pattern. That, Jesus, that Jehovah Himself set, having rested the seventh day of creation week, He rejoiced in His labor. He glorified Himself. Later on, Moses, in giving the law the second time to the Israelites, changes the reason why they are to keep the fourth commandment. That's a significant difference in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 5 from that of Exodus 20. And in changing the reason, his point isn't that God's original reason doesn't matter any longer, but his point is that as the church of Jesus Christ goes throughout history and goes through different life experiences, she ought understand more and more why the keeping of the Sabbath day is necessary. For you have been delivered from Egypt, says Moses to Israel. Remember what Egypt meant? Egypt was bondage, service to Pharaoh, make more bricks, make even more, and I won't give you help, service and bondage, and not only that, you may not have a day of rest, and you may not go into the wilderness for three days journey to serve the Lord your God, you are lazy. Now, Moses to Israel at Mount Sinai. Haven't these three months in the wilderness been an amazing reprieve from that bondage? One day of every week, you will put aside your labor in order to draw near to God in gratitude and fellowship. To be clear, as I continue with the sermon today, that last statement is going to be the governing point and is going to enable us to guard against legalism and licentiousness. The day is for Jehovah. Now above all, Jehovah God hallowed the Sabbath. That's the title of my first point. Kept or hallowed by God. He hallowed it on the one hand in that He commanded us to keep it holy. But He hallowed it also, in that he himself observed that day. Go back again to his intent for the Sabbath day. And what you read of that in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. The point of, that, of God resting, by the way, is not that he ceased all activity. So anyone who says, God rested, I can stay in bed all day also, is missing this point. God didn't cease all activity. He didn't stop upholding and sustaining the creation that he made. He did not stop blessing his people with peace and godliness and every blessing in Jesus Christ. In that sense, Jehovah God never rests. But he devoted the day to the praise of his name. And so does his son, Jesus Christ, as he came in the flesh. That's the point that's underscored. By reading those passages we read. 
As a human, Jesus did not transgress the fourth commandment. When the Pharisees accused him of such, they were hypocritical. And he points that out. In the Sabbath, he taught. And what he taught was not anything, any idea. What he taught was the Old Testament law in its meaning and prophets in its meaning and in its exposition and in its New Testament fulfillments in him. Read of that, Luke 4. He closes the scroll to Isaiah of Isaiah and he says, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Look, I am the Messiah promised. He taught the gospel. That was the Sabbath day. In busy in teaching the gospel, he needed to eat. You and I understand that. We probably ate already today. We certainly, no doubt, are going to be eating in another couple of hours. And before the day's over, we'll eat at least once more. No one suggests we shouldn't. So were his disciples wrong in going through the fields to pluck corn? And his answer to that essentially is no. You need strength to do the work of God. They weren't stealing, and the Pharisees understood that. There was an Old Testament law that provided for wayfarers, for travelers, to go into the first rows of any field as they needed and take their corn, their grain, and eat it. They didn't take extra and go bake some for tomorrow. They took what they needed for the day. They didn't make an elaborate preparation. When we read of the disciples plucking that corn, we read they rubbed it in their hands. That's all they did and ate it raw. But the Lord nourishes us on the Sabbath day so that we can be busy in the work of God. And even in His human and divine natures, as we see him doing miracles, as he emphasizing this point, it is miracles of healing, I said already. And why those? Because miracles of healing point us, first of all, to the need for salvation from sin. Every physical infirmity, in one way or another, a picture of the bondage into sin into which we've fallen, and every healing by Jesus Christ a picture of the grace of the eternal life and a demonstration and concrete evidence of the forgiveness of sins that He gives on the basis of His death and resurrection. The mistake of the ruler of the synagogue who said, there are six days in which you can be healed was that he looked at healing only as a bodily thing. It did not see the gospel significance in it. And so Jesus Christ, in both his teaching and in his actions on the Sabbath, teaches us four underlying principles. That the Sabbath is a day to enjoy rest from the bondage of sin. And do so in the way of fellowship with Jehovah God. That the Sabbath is an appropriate day for doing works of mercy. Indeed, some of those works of mercy that are appropriate for us to do on the Sabbath would be the visiting of the fatherless and widows in their affliction. That in the third place, works of necessity are not wrong to do on the Sabbath. To eat, to get food, to take care of one's cattle. That, of course, is said in light of a context which you ought to understand. And that is that we have prepared for the Sabbath the day previous, as Israel was to do in gathering manna. That to say works of necessity are not wrong is one thing, but therefore to say, so I may save every necessary work for the Sabbath, and then it's not wrong for me to do it. In other words, still not to set the day apart is wrong. And the fourth principle 
set forth, although not in a passage that I read, Jehovah and Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Or as the gospel says, the Sabbath was made for man. Man needs it. And not man for the Sabbath. Four foundational principles. In the command that God gives us in the fourth commandment, He says to His church, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, now remember that, do it, and observe it. Keep the Sabbath day holy. A couple of things about the command, and even again the fact that in the fourth commandment there are, rem- there are several commands. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, and then in different ways the commandment spells out what we may not do. So there's more than one imperative here which sets this commandment apart from some of the others. Thou shalt not. Kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. One prohibition, one commandment, here several. Remember. In other words, there are times, aren't there, when the Sabbath suddenly sneaks up on you. Oh, it's Saturday night. Oh, shoot. I gotta hurry. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. Tomorrow's Sunday. It snuck up on me. And the life of the child of God, although of course we find the weeks go by quickly, there shouldn't be such a sneaking up on us of the Sabbath day. Remember it throughout the week. Bear it in mind. Prepare for it during the week. That's number one. But in the second place, keep it holy. That is, put aside your usual labors And implement the four principles I've spelled out and serve Jehovah God in praise and worship. Now let me come to defend the abiding relevance of the fourth commandment for the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. For one argument that professing Christians use to try to defend their Sabbath desecration is that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And therefore they say, there is now no Sabbath day. That was an Old Testament law. He fulfilled it. I've got a question for you children. Ten-year-olds and older, maybe even seven and eight-year-olds. What's wrong? What's wrong with that thinking? Because we know Jesus came to fulfill the law. He says that he meant the ceremonial law. Of the moral law, of the Ten Commandments, he said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill that too, to do it perfectly, not to destroy it. So what's wrong with the thinking? That the fourth commandment is not in force anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. Well, here's what's wrong. And so is the first. I don't need to worship Jehovah alone. Christ fulfilled that law. It doesn't bind me anymore. I don't need to observe the second, worshiping Jehovah in spirit and truth. He will permit His name to be profaned now because Christ has taken the law of way. I may kill. I may dishonor my parents. Take away the fourth commandment and you've taken away them all. Really? And you're going to call yourself Christian? And you're going to say, because you're Christian, you can do what you want? Isn't a Christian one whom God, saving by His grace, binds to Himself in a covenant of friendship and says, You will keep my law. The fourth commandment abides today. Now, there is one ceremonial aspect of the fourth commandment that is changed. Instead of the seventh day, 
we worship Jehovah on the first day. For this, we draw the charge from the Jews and the Seventh-day Adventists of being Sabbath desecrators. That's a serious charge. If they're right, Jehovah so loves his law and demands the keeping of the law as he requires it, that we would have to confess our guilt and repent and go back to worshiping on the seventh day of the week. So, why do we not do that? That is, why do we worship on the first day of the week? And the answer is twofold. First of all, because the history and practice of the Christian church immediately after the resurrection of Christ was to gather the first day of the week. Read Acts 20, verse 7. Read 1 Corinthians 16, verse 23. Uh, That is, I think it's 2 and 3, I mean. That is, to take our collections on the first day of the week. Read John saying in Revelation 1, verse 10, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which was the first day of the week. It is the practice of the early church immediately after the resurrection. That's reason number one. Reason number two. The the reason why it was the practice of the church immediately from the resurrection is because of the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week. And Jesus was doing something there. Having died on the cross, having taken the burden of God's wrath on Himself and borne that wrath in full and rising from the dead to show that He has overcome death, that He has overcome corruption, that He's overcome the bondage of sin, that He has made us free. The real freedom of the church of Christ is not just that we're not serving Pharaoh in Egypt, but that the Holy Spirit works in us the resurrection life of Christ. And we have the power, spiritual power, to keep God's law and to serve Him. He did that on the first day of the week. And doing so on the first day of the week, he said to us, as it were. The whole Old Testament kept looking forward to this. You had a promise of the real rest that was coming. You had to work the first six days of the week. And then the seventh day, you could rest in hope of that which is to come. But now it's here. And in the New Testament, the people of God don't work and then rest. We rest and then we work. That's the significance of Christ rising the first day of the week and of the church commemorating the first day of the week. As the day of rest, the New Testament Sabbath. Now I want to emphasize the point further in two brief ways. In the first, to remind you that every Old Testament feast finds its fulfillment in the New Testament on the day after the day in which it was observed in the Old Testament. The Passover was Thursday, Good Friday we observe. The resurrection, of course, was Sunday morning. That wasn't one of the feasts. The Feast of Pentecost was always on a Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. The Church of Jesus Christ observed it, and the Holy Spirit was indeed poured out on the first day of the week. So, the principle doesn't just apply to the Sabbath day, but to all of the feasts of the Old Testament as they're fulfilled in Christ And the church observes them now. That's one way to drive it home. The second is a more practical way. Up until the time of Constantine, the emperor in 312 and later, the Christians were not free, at least in the eyes of the empire, of the civil government and of society, to have the whole first day of the week as a day of rest. They had to work yet. 
So, because it was not an option for them not to worship, they gathered very early in the day before work and very late in the day after work. From the days of Constantine on, Sunday became an empire-wide holiday. And it was much easier, at least outwardly, to observe the day as a day of rest. That practice continued in Western thought and civilization until the present day. But I'm not saying it's continuing yet today. More and more, the society in which we live, of course, does not permit a Sabbath day's rest. And there will come a time, I'm going to speak to you 10-year-olds and teenagers again, there will come a time when maybe the government says, you must work on Sunday. And then we face a question. The keeping of the Sabbath on the first day of the week is such a distinct mark of the Christian faith that the Christian must be ready to suffer for the Lord's sake If he's told, he must violate the Sabbath and may not observe it as a day of rest. Young people, pray for the grace of God to be faithful in this respect. Now we come to the question, how do we implement the principles of the Sabbath that the Lord taught? Those four principles with which I ended my first point. And that leads us to look at the Catechism and what it says. You're going to notice here that our Catechism is very broad. It does say specifics, for instance, that the ministry of the Gospel and the schools be maintained. And I, especially on the Sabbath, that is on the day of rest, diligently frequent the Church of God to hear His Word, to use the sacraments publicly to call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. And that's it. If you were to read the Westminster Larger Catechism, you would find a much longer list of, I'll call them do's and don'ts. The point of the Westminster Fathers was not to be legalistic, though. It was more to help the people understand in more detail what is and what is not appropriate for the keeping of the Lord's Day. Our Dutch Reformed Fathers just set forth the basic principle Worship. If the Sabbath is a day of rest from work, if it's a day to devote to God as a day of of having fellowship with Him, then let's come together to worship. And every different aspect of worship is listed in answer 103 of the Catechism to drive home the point. But this we need to focus on that we diligently frequent. That means that we go as often as we can. It recognizes that God in His providence sometimes keeps us from coming to the house of God one day or another Sabbath day. But it means that as often as I can, as often as the elders call me to worship, and as often as I am free to do that without the Lord in His providence hindering me, that I come to worship Jehovah God. That's frequent. And that I do it diligently is not to say that just in my outward body I am always here and the elders notice that I'm a very regular attendee and my body is sitting in the pew, but that I do it diligently means that in my heart I have prepared. I want to hear the word of the Lord. I want to fellowship with Him. I want to manifest that Christian exercise of mercy in the contributing to the relief of the poor, etc. This is central to the keeping of the Sabbath. That first, as to how the Catechism sets it forth. The second place, it is true that works of necessity and mercy are not prohibited. There are some of us who are maybe employed even in fields, in occupations in which we are required to work on the Sabbath day. And the Lord is not inherently displeased with such. And yet, 
What he did not then do is say, sure, go ahead, you need to work your 12-hour shift at the hospital. So, don't make it a day of rest anymore. Yes, you have to go work. In what way are we still doing what is in our power to make the day a day of feeding our soul? That principle is still in force. Thirdly, in application here and implementing these principles, let's see that this fourth commandment doesn't just say, be sure you go to church once. Oh, if you're a good Dutch Reformed, be sure you go to church twice. But it says, keep the day holy so that every person and every head of household must face the question, what goes on at my house before 9 o'clock Sunday morning when we leave for church, from Sunday noon to 4.30 between church, and Sunday 7 o'clock and on after church? Is my going to church all there is to the keeping holy of the Sabbath, and yet apart from the going to church, the chunk of time in the afternoon and evening is just life as normal, or do I work to apply these principles in my home in a way that shows I still desire fellowship with God and I'm putting aside the ordinary and the mundane and the earthly and the everyday? It's a fair question, fathers. What may your children not do? Now, there's a legalism, of course, that says what may and mayn't be done on the Sabbath, but that legalism isn't what a father's doing when he makes rules for his household. That legalism is a matter of me as one father saying of you as another father whose rules might be a little different. Your application of the principle is a little different. You're wrong. That's a legalism, unless I can demonstrate that, in fact, you're violating the Sabbath. A legalism is for me to insist on how you must do it. But when a father who has authority in his own home says to his children, you have six days of the week to do your homework. You may put that aside on the Sabbath. That's not legalism. Every father, I realize, might Apply that principle a little differently. And the purpose of my using it was not to say the only one possible way it can happen. I'm defending the Father's right. Indeed, His calling to say to His children, this is how we're going to apply these principles. It's not always easy. Because fathers will be challenged. Let's take another example, which I'm setting forth not as a thou shalt, but the sort of example that a father has every right to say, this is how it will go in my house. Put aside your digital devices today, children. Unless you can demonstrate to me that what you're listening to on them, then you better not have these earbuds in your ears, that what you're listening to them is edifying to your soul. And the communications you're having with your friends on them is not just mere planning of the week and get, getting caught up, but is an expression of Christian love and building each other up. In other words, one father could say, the device itself is hindering my child from keeping the Sabbath. You put it aside. And another could say, but you're not going to use it, child the same way you use it the other six days of the week. Now, my point and goal has been to drive home the need for heads of homes to see to it that the principles are applied at home. The keeping of the Sabbath is not only a matter of going to church. So at this point, that every one of us examines ourselves in light of the principles set forth earlier and says, but I've fallen short. 
And we better see that. It isn't just that I did this little thing I shouldn't have, or I failed to do that little thing that would have been good. I fell short in my heart. I did view the day as for me. I did go sometimes through the motions of the day when I was at church, and I did not receive in full measure as I should have the blessing. And so we come to God now and acknowledge how far short we've fallen. We confess our sins. And we hear that same Jesus Christ who opened up the gospel of the Old Testament in the synagogues on the Sabbath and who healed in pointing to his saving work in, Jesus, in, him, in his power and in his, in his spirit. And we come to him and hear him tell us. You two are forgiven. You two are healed. The battle against sin will go on. For a while yet. But you are healed in principle. Now. Aren't you thankful? One day of the week is a small thing. When the Lord has saved us body and soul from hell. What encourages us then in the keeping of the Sabbath day is the last part of the catechism, a very beautiful and distinctive aspect that only the catechism brings out of Reformed creeds, as far as I know. Secondly, that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Holy Spirit in me and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. There is a Sabbath that awaits. We mean heaven. We mean heaven in all its fullness. We mean heaven not just where we go when we die, that will be in advance and enjoying of the, of the Sabbath day, no doubt about it. But we mean heaven when Jesus Christ comes again. There's a Sabbath coming. And here was one more proof that there's a Sabbath God requires His people to keep in the New Testament. If it was clear in the Old Testament, they must. And if heaven is an eternal Sabbath, then He certainly has not said to the New Testament church, you don't need it. It's certainly true that for the New Testament church also, He says, you need it to keep you looking ahead. A Sabbath is coming. And that Sabbath is going to be a delightful day. A day of true rest. Not in activity rest. Service to God in His kingdom. Each of us in one way or another. But always in the work we do. Not a burden. Not a toiling. But a praising of and delighting in Jehovah God. Now that's what the Sabbath, the earthly Sabbath is to be. But then, not just the earthly Sabbath, every day of the life of the child of God must be this. The reality of an eternal Sabbath coming has two implications for us. Today is a delightful day. That's implication number one. Which of you woke up this morning and said, uh, it's Sunday, isn't it? Go bring that to your Lord. Get yourself right with Him on that point. He's merciful. He'll forgive. It isn't a matter of, uh, it's Sunday again. It is a delight. It is Sunday Again, this is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's implication number one. Implication number two. The delight, the delight I had today in serving, worshiping Jehovah God, in fellowshipping with His saints, in doing works of mercy and caring for those in need, that delight colors every day of the week. Tomorrow, through Saturday, because the same God who spoke salvation to me today is the God I'm going to serve tomorrow. 
The same God who says today, I've given you the strength, is the God who will give me that strength tomorrow. The same God who says to me today, stop looking down. Would you look up? Says to me throughout the week, keep looking up. He's there. He's there to receive our praise, our service. He's there to be glorified by us. He's there as the faithful covenant-keeping God. Who in giving us a Sabbath day is being very merciful, very tender, and saying to us, look to Him. Look up. Look away from riches. Look away from work. Look away from this earth. There is a joy. There is a peace that supersedes. When you know that joy and peace, and when every day of the week you strive to live in gratitude out of it, then you and I are in this life enjoying a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath. May God give us that grace. Amen. To the honor and the glory and the praise of thy name, in gratitude for the redemption given us in Christ, Father, give us to serve and praise thee. As a woman loosed from her infirmity, as a man whose withered arm is withered, praised and confessed thee, and busied themselves immediately in doing what they could not have done before, in gratitude to thee, give us also, both on the Sabbath day and every day of the week, to serve thee with joy and gladness, for Jesus' sake.